From Boise, Idaho and Idaho Education News, this is Extra Credit, your weekly podcast looking at education policy and education politics. I'm Kevin Richard. And I'm Clark Corbin. You know, I thought driving in this morning that I would just abstain from doing a, a podcast. But, you know, I thought, nah, let's give the people what they want. Let's do a podcast after all here. Because we have a lot to get to. This is a very eventful week, and it started Monday with you at the the culmination of the task force's work, their final meeting, final recommendations, and a little bit of drama along the way. Yeah, after five months of, of work, five months or so, uh, the governor's task force wrapped up. It held its final meeting, and it conducted its final big vote. Um, and I, I guess the... The discussion was as interesting as the vote because we had sort of we had already known what the recommendations were, and all of that them was not approved. Because we knew what the recommendations were all along. Yeah, but it was sort of the I don't know. There was this eleventh hour effort from six of the legislators, six of the Republican, Republican legislators, legislators on the task force for about an hour before the vote was called. Um, spent that hour before lunch pushing back against several of the recommendations, saying, oh, no, we're not so sure about this. I don't know if I can support this. I don't know here about this. And then a number of them either abstained completely from voting or in some cases voted against the actual recommendations themselves. And I thought that was interesting because let's just be really clear about what the task force is. Governor Brad Little asked the task force to come up with a small number of education recommendations all geared around early childhood literacy and college and career readiness to kind of come up with a five-year blueprint for education around those two areas. And so the task force was really recommending concepts and policy proposals only to the governor. Mm -hmm. We're still very early in this process. It's up to the governor to decide if he's going to accept the recommendations, how he will prioritize them, and then how he will try to implement them, because many of them have a cost attached to them, we assume that they would have to go through the legislature at some point. And so that's what makes this interesting about the legislators. And so which legislators are we talking about? The two education chairs, uh, Senate Education Chair Dean Mortimer and House Education Chair Lance Clow, both abstained from voting. I asked Clow about why he decided to do that, and he said, well... I feel like, as the chairman, I need to be a balanced and fair moderator. And I don't want to be in a position where someone could say, oh, you're doing this because you already voted in favor of a task force recommendation. We know your position. And so Clow told me that remaining neutral on the vote was important for him for proper leadership of the committee. Okay, okay so that's protocol. And that's uh, how Clow uh, is approaching the protocol of this. But some of these votes were votes against the recommendations, and those were philosophical, ideological, were they not? Yeah, absolutely. And so some of the other, some of the other action from Monday, um, just real quickly, Representative Wendy Horman, the Idaho Falls Republican who serves as the vice chair on JFAC, voted against building out the career ladder, which is something the task force had talked about in terms of an effort to increase pay for veteran teachers. So she voted against that. Uh, Senate Majority Leader Chuck Winder abstained from voting on the recommendation to expand state funding for all-day kindergarten across the state. House Assistant Majority Leader Jason Monks voted against or abstained from voting on four of the recommendations. And then, you know, Dean Mortimer, who did abstain, 
before the vote was called, talking about the career ladder, he also said, and I'm quoting here, quote, to say we want to put a third rung on the career ladder, I don't think that's necessarily where we want to go. I think we've missed the mark on this one, end quote. And so that's two powerful legislators, Mortimer and Horman, expressing concern with the career ladder, which is the teacher pay recommendation. I, I just think it's interesting, and I think this caught some of the other task force members off guard because right. notably, right. Uh, State Superintendent Sherry Urbara, who's a Republican, uh, supported all task force recommendations. The Democratic legislators supported all the task force recommendations. And then all of the education and business leaders on the task force, and that includes superintendents and uh, teachers and stakeholders, mm -hmm. business leaders, CEOs, um, they all supported all of the task force recommendations as well. Terry Ryan, the, uh, the Bloom official, abstained on one vote. But other than the Republican legislators, pretty much everybody else supported all five recommendations. And so to me, it's just, I, I wonder, did they just want to abstain so they're not locked into a vote or because they haven't seen enough information that they want to lock in support or opposition, knowing that this may come forward between during the 2020 legislative session? Or was it more opposition? Right. And so that's well, what I'm interested in. Well, and, and for sure, it's a different climate than we saw five years ago in when, when, when Governor Otter's education task force wrapped up. We were both at that meeting. 21 in, recommendations with 21 unanimous votes. I want to say. No, there was one, okay. one non-unanimous vote. Uh, Jeff, Jeffrey Thomas Just, from yeah, Madison yeah. voted against the Common Core resolution. Every other recommendation was unanimous. Yeah, that's right. You're right. Thank you for correcting that. But, you know, the, the point remains, though, uh, near unanim unanimity from that task force. And there were legislators on, on that task force. And this time around, I, and I wonder, this time around, these votes, whether they're abstentions or outright uh, votes against the recommendations, suggests to me that there could be uh, a lot of turbulence uh, when and if these recommendations come before the legislature. That's what I was wondering about. And it really did seem like, you know, these recommendations really came out of the subcommittees. They did the work um, putting these recommendations together. And then the full task force kind of whittled the list down from something like 11 proposed recommendations down to five. But these recommendations have been out there for months. And I know some other task force members felt like, hey, if you guys had some concerns about these or weren't quite sure, there were months worth of opportunities right. for you to express that or to help shape them into something that you could have supported. And I think some or to of- signal saying, look, I'm not gonna be able to vote. Right. I, I don't wanna vote, I wanna abstain, I wanna keep, uh, remain neutral until the session. So I think yeah. that caught them off guard, like, hey, there was a months long process and we felt like we didn't hear that level of opposition in some cases mm -hmm. until yeah. the very 11th hour right before the vote and there was you know there was a debate all along the way some people had varying degrees of comfort with the specifics but the overall concepts uh, nobody opposed those earlier on so I, I don't know but uh, I, I think it'll be interesting to watch where this goes and and the votes to be clear you know if you were a legislator and you had voted either yes or no you're not, that's not a vote for implementation. That's just a vote on sending the recommendation forward to the governor. That has nothing to do with an actual vote to actually raise teacher pay. We're right. way too early in that process. So all it was is do we endorse, do we support sending this concept to the governor, putting our stamp of approval on it.
But even with the Republican opposition, I think there were 26 members of the task force, six Republican legislators, and so they all passed comfortably, even over uh, the Republican opposition but, and abstention. But still, anything that you want to do off of these task force recommendations, anything you need to try to get through the legislature, you're going to need support from Republican legislators to, to pass it. And as I think about some of these recommendations, whether it's the all-day kindergarten recommendation or the expansion of the career ladder, right. those have some significant costs attached to them. You wrote also this week about uh, the governor asking state agencies to, to cut their spending for this current budget year and to reduce their spending base into the next budget year. Every agency except K-12. But what it suggests is that some real tight budgets ahead, some really tough budget decisions ahead, which will make it difficult to, to get any new initiatives through on K-12. It's going to be a tough slog anyway. Right. And I, these task force votes on Monday suggest that it could be a really tough slog. I think that's exactly right. And the financial budgetary implications had always been a part of this task force discussion. They really had a subcommittee that looked just at budget implications and tried to say, okay, we feel like ballpark, this is how much funding and revenue we're going to have available. But it was very much understood that these recommendations, whether it's all-day kindergarten or increasing teacher pay for veteran educators, would have been implemented over multiple years anyways. That mm -hmm. was always an expectation. The five-year plan. Yeah, that this wasn't, we weren't going to do all of these in one year or one fell swoop. The budget implications certainly were always a big part of the task force discussions and always a recognition that that's a reality that, that we're going to have to face, is that these are going to cost money in an era where there is increasing competition for scarce financial resources. Something tells me the words five-year plan could become a mantra here as this discussion moves from the task force to the legislature. Uh, my, my hunch here is that when you look at the budget implications, when you look at some of the political pushback, Governor Little may look at this and say, there may be only so much that you can get done in the 2020 legislative session. Oh, I think he already. I think he already. He already knew that. Uh, you know, talking about the multi-year implementation plan. But I think it'll be interesting if you want to get caught up. If you want to go through the recommendations themselves, my story from Monday talks about the task force recommendations and the final vote. My story from Thursday talks about the budget situation, the one percent cutbacks from the current budget year, the two percent base budget reductions for the coming year for all agencies other than K-12 education. That's all there. Um, but next week, we're, we're right now in the stages of putting together a special show for next week focusing just on the task force. We hope to talk with some of the key players from the task force about the process and about where this goes next. Uh, so we haven't finalized everything 100%, but we're working on a special show for next week where we can talk more about the task force and we hope and look forward to you joining us there. Yes, yes. So a lot more to say about the task force and a, a lot more to get to on that. But that's was, not even the whole week. That was that was that's really only the start Monday. Of the week. That was just Monday. Tuesday was a big election all across the state. A lot of the headlines, as we talked about last week, centered around mayoral elections. But there were a number of school board elections and a couple of levy elections. And and you. Uh, had a great preview and, and sifted through all of our school districts and called a bunch of county clerks and were tracking things all across the state. Uh, but it, when it comes to the school board elections 
and the levees. What were you watching on Tuesday and Wednesday, and, and what did you find? It was interesting, and you know, we didn't know what to expect because, as we mentioned in our story last week, and as we mentioned in the run-up to this election, this was uncharted territory. This was the first time school board races appeared on the November ballot alongside races for mayor and city council. So we didn't really know what to expect. We didn't know what to expect coming into it. Would this bring more candidates out of the woodwork? Would this result in more contested races? Would it affect turnout? And to what degree would it affect turnout? And would it affect kind of the outcome of the races? Well, we didn't have very many contested school board races, as, as we chronicled yeah. last week. Uh, Randy Schrader did yeoman's work uh, compiling all of those numbers, and we reported those last week. I mean, you know, uh, fewer than a quarter of the school board races that were up for uh, renewal, up for re-election, actually resulted in a contested race. So a lot of these races never even appeared on the ballot because there was only one candidate. Um, Turnout uh, certainly had to improve because you had more people coming to the polls in November, and especially in a, in a place like, like Meridian, where you had a contested mayor's race. Certainly the turnout for the school board race in West Ada had to have been improved and did improve. What did this mean in terms of the results? I thought the results were really interesting. Yeah. Uh, as I tallied it up, there were 43 contested school board races on Tuesday night where there was a race between an incumbent and a challenger or challengers. 23 incumbents got reelected, 20 did not. So there was little to no advantage to being an incumbent. And you had turnover in some some high-profile districts. I thought the um, West Ada race with Mike Wheatonay uh, losing his seat was interesting because he'd been, soundly. he'd been an established school board member, I believe. I want to say he'd been board chair before. Um, he'd been board chair before. He'd been very active on state issues. Yeah. He'd been active with the school boards association. Um, we've seen him around the state house yeah. uh, lobbying on bills. He was a fairly high-profile trustee in state circles, representing the largest district in the state lost resoundingly. Yeah. I mean, it was more than 60% of the vote. Uh, you know, we had turnover in New Plymouth, a district that's had some controversy and had, has had some turmoil. Emmett, a, a district, again, where you have a new superintendent and you had a pretty rocky uh, process of replacing the superintendent there, uh, just like you did in New Plymouth. Teton County, where you had yeah. this, you know, big debate over the, uh, the high school uh, mascot. You had one incumbent running for re-election who did not get you know, re-elected. Um, it's been a tough few months in Teton County. It's been a tough few months in Teton County. And, I, and I, it, it's too early to tell what any of these outcomes are going to mean in terms of the local politics. But in some of those high-profile districts and in smaller districts alike, you had incumbent school board members uh, getting voted out. Um, you know, From Lakeland to Caldwell to Idaho Falls really incumbents uh, all over the place uh, getting replaced. And it was interesting, you know, we have several of us are up at the Idaho School Boards Association convention in Coeur d'Alene this week, and, and Sammy Edge uh, caught up with Mike Wheatonay for a story that we have on our site that she posted on Thursday. And Wheatonay said that it was, it was a real change to have an election on the November ballot. Yeah. And he felt like, in this case, the school board races really were shunted to the side because there was just not as much attention paid to them because they were 
you know, down ticket. They the mayor's race was about taking all the air out of the room. Right. And, and you know, we just know living in, in this area, the race in Meridian, the mayor's race was, you know, very you know, hotly contested. It was an open race, uh, you know, some high profile candidates, a lot of money being spent on that race. And, and the Boise mayor's race has taken a lot of the political oxygen in this whole valley. So if you're a school board member and you're trying to compete for attention, and you're trying to compete for, uh, for you know, for oxygen in that political ecosystem. There, there wasn't much to be had. So I can see what he was saying. Uh, Sammy also talked to Karen Echevarria, the executive director of the school boards association, and she kind of downplayed the effect. She didn't think that there was a whole lot of difference in terms of the number of contested races right. or the turnover. And she's been following this uh, a lot more closely uh, than we have for a long, long time. So. You know, I'll, I'll put some stock in what she said about how this election compared to others, but it was, it was, it felt different and it felt, uh, you know, it felt like there was a lot of churn and now we'll watch and see how that churn plays out at the district level. Because the last thing I, I want to do when I talk about elections like this is to try to be overly general Yeah. because the politics in New Plymouth in a school board race has pretty much zero to do with the politics in a school board election in Teton County. It is the the epitome of local politics and trying to oversimplify and make a sweeping conclusion about what happened is is a fool's errand. So I'm going to really try to avoid that. But a lot of interesting results. Well, I thought there was one interesting uh, take from Sammy's story, and that is by having the elections in November, that means you have new school board members, sometimes first-time school board members, taking a seat in January, right smack dab in the middle of the school year when getting ready for contract negotiations and this, that, and the other thing. Mm-hmm. And so yeah. it'll be interesting to see what the learning curve is like or if there are any disruptions or anything along those lines. But that yeah, is an interesting concept. Not much of a honeymoon period. For you hit the ground trustees. running and you got to start making complicated decisions in January as a first time school board member as opposed to coming online during the summer and having time to ramp up before the school year. I, I don't know. I don't know if that will be significant or if that's just something that's in people's minds right now. I, I don't know if that will have any effect or not. And, and let's talk about some of the other election results. And, and speaking of difficult decisions ahead, let's talk about the Nampa School District and let's talk about the levies that were on the ballot. There were four across the state, two passed, two failed. Um, the ones that failed, uh, there was a plant facilities levy in Swan Valley that failed. Um, good news for Swan Valley, they got 40% of the vote this time after getting 15, 1-5% of the vote uh, for a larger uh, plant facilities levy back in May. That one needed a 55% majority, so they've still got a ways to go. But let's talk about Nampa. And, yeah. you know, we reporters love to preach about the importance of being an engaged voter, that your vote makes a difference. Well, in Nampa, your vote really did make a difference on Tuesday. A two-year, $24 million supplemental levy needed a simple majority to pass. It fell 11 votes short of passing. And let's just stop right there because this has bugged me all week. I've been told, and I know a lot of our listeners... I know a lot of our listeners have been told that that levy actually failed by 10 votes, and that's not the case because if it had received 10 more votes... It would have failed in a tie vote. So 11, the definition of a simple majority is that you need... 50% plus one, people. So 11 votes, not 10. Uh, Lecture over. Um, 
But yeah, that but, was a super but the, interesting. But the point remains of the importance of every individual vote. I mean, we're talking about an 11 vote margin in a, a, a supplemental levy election that drew, I'm moving down here. All the way down at the bottom, I want to say. More than oh, yeah. 7,400 people voted in that supplemental levy, 11 votes. So now the Nampa district has to figure out what to do next. And they are going to meet, the, the trustees are going to meet on Tuesday to discuss their next steps. Uh, we don't expect any decisions to come out. Their options are, well, there are a couple. Uh, they could ask the county for a, a recount. This is not a close enough election to uh, trigger an automatic right. recount that's paid for by the county. So if the school district wants to pursue a recount, they've got to pony up the money. Or they can look at the supplemental levy and take another run at it. The earliest they could come back with a vote is in March. Um, again, we don't expect any decisions from the school board meeting on Tuesday, but we'll keep an eye on what happens there. You know. $24 million over two years. And the things that Nampa was talking about uh, doing with that money, I mean, these are some fairly significant um, programs. I mean, they were talking about uh, using some of the money to help keep teachers in the classroom, to pay for teaching positions, uh, for some uh, you know, extracurricular programs. I mean, you know, this was not a trivial matter. And, you know, $12 million a year in a budget for even a large district like Nampa, that is a big chunk of money. So we will keep a close eye on what Nampa does and where they go from here. Well, one thing I keep hearing from superintendents over and over again is that supplemental levies are no longer supplemental and haven't been for years. But let's talk about some of the other reporting you did, taking a look at the larger issue of supplementals, how prevalent they are, how much it's costing our taxpayers. Because you also dug into some of these numbers. Yeah, and again, with, with help from Randy Schrader on this one, we uh, got this year's supplemental levy bill. Uh, this is how much uh, taxpayers have voted to pay to support their schools locally. The supplemental levy bill statewide, another record, $214 million. That's an increase of about $12 million from last year. And again, you know, we've talked about this before and uh, not much change here. The vast majority of school districts are running supplemental levies, are using supplemental levies. 92 school districts around the state out of 115. That actually went down one, and that's worth noting as well. 92 out of 115 school districts are going to voters. They're getting these supplemental levies. And, you know, like you say, you know, you know administrators chafe at the term supplemental levy yeah. because their feeling is this is paying for things that are not uh, supplementals and not paying for add-ons or paying for salaries and benefits. Uh, in the case of the Lapway School District, which I think is kind of, you know, they may get some competition now from Nampa, but I think Lapway is the poster child for a school district that could not get a supplemental levy passed and what happens. So Lapway, North Central Idaho, uh, had a supplemental levy fail in March. That you know, explains the difference between 93 districts and 92 districts with a supplemental levy. That's one of the changes. Well, in Lapway, what it meant was they closed the middle school. Yeah. They decided to disperse their students in two buildings as opposed to keeping three buildings in operation. So they closed the middle school, which is actually the newest building, the newest school building in the district. But Which would know, have been supported by a bond at one time or another. Yeah. And so... so Tough decision. So, you know, that was what Lapway had to do when they were forced to absorb the lack of a supplemental levy. So, 
we have an in-depth story looking at this. Uh, we've got a lot of reaction to the, the new numbers and what we heard over and over from, from folks uh, across the education spectrum is there are equity issues here. Uh, you know, there are some districts that can't pass a supplemental levy, i.e. Lapway, and as we saw Tuesday, Nampa. There are districts that can get a lot more money, a lot more bang for their buck from a supplemental levy than others. And that was uh, something I looked into midweek. I have a blog following up on the uh, supplemental levy what was numbers. the What was the figure that you found, that, that what it corresponds to? Yeah, um, and this isn't really too much groundbreaking research because uh, folks like the Idaho Center for Fiscal Policy have done similar numbers. But what I wanted to do was I looked at the big districts, the biggest supplemental levies around the state, and what that translates into levy per student. And Moscow has one of the largest supplemental levies in the state, but it's not a terribly large district. It's a couple thousand students. So right. their supplemental levy is worth close to $5,000 per student. West Ada, biggest district in the state, one of the larger supplemental levies around the state. It's $14 million dispersed over 40,000 kids. Comes to about $300 per student. Supplemental levy in Moscow is worth 14 times as much per student as West Ada is. Yeah. <laughs> 14 times. I did the math twice. It's, it's not a misprint. It's, it's fairly remarkable. And, you know, we've seen those kind of gaps before. Uh, the Center for Fiscal Policy did a really nice study about this a few months ago. And they looked at, you know, the gaps are even wider when you look at really small districts where the, 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 the numbers and the statistical samples are smaller. But here are two larger districts, a huge gap. So when we talk about the supplemental levies and we talk about the equity issues that they create, you know, you, you need look no further than those two school districts. And, you know, I, I broke it down. I looked at the numbers uh, for, you know, the largest districts in the state and the largest supplemental levies. So if you, if you live in one of the larger districts, you can kind of see what you're paying, what you've supported as a community in terms of supplemental levies and how far it goes per student. It's, yeah, and this problem, this issue is not going to go away. Um, you know, in spite of increased funding at the state level, the dependence on supplemental levies shows no sign of stopping. I mean, districts still are going to voters, and in most cases, not every case, but in most cases, voters are willing to go along and pass a supplemental levy. That right. did happen on Tuesday in Minidoka County. That happened up in Lake Ponderay. Voters approved a supplemental levy, basically extending a supplemental levy indefinitely into the future, which you can do under There's certain circumstances, circumstances under Idaho law. Yeah. So in in those two districts, voters did say, yes, we will support a supplemental levy. We will pay pay property taxes to support our schools. Narrow majorities in both cases. Again, votes do matter. Um, you know, but you know, this is not an issue that's going to go away anytime soon. No. I, the task force talked about the supplemental levies, the, uh, the budget implications and, and all of that. It, it's something we always hear about constantly. And with you know, four election days throughout the year. Um, yeah. it, it, it's either just been an election day or a new one's coming up, it almost seems like. Uh, but yeah, like you said, it's a reality in, what was the number, 92 out of 152 districts this and, year? 200 yeah. plus million dollars. Um, and spoiler alert, we will be talking about supplemental levies again in March because history shows us that that is the biggest election day of the right. year in terms of supplemental levies. A lot of districts run their supplementals in March. They can avoid those 
political elections, uh, the well, May primary and the know, November general. And that's been kind of the cynical uh, argument uh, against some of these supplemental levy elections in, in March and May and, and August. Uh, you know, critics saying that, you know, this is a way around the voters. Uh, turnout will be lower in March, even with supplemental levies on the ballot and multiple school districts, which is, you know, what I would expect uh, based on what we've seen in the past. You know, Regardless of what Nampa does uh, and what they decide to do with their situation, whether they try to take another run in March, it will be a busy election day for, for us here, and that's only a few months away. Well, I mean, all of 2020 is going to be a busy election year for all of us. But, but you know, I, I saw today on Twitter from our friend of the show, <laughs> Melissa Davlin, who's at the Legislative Council meeting that... Short and sweet. Their, their target date for adjournment is March 20th. Woohoo! I'm going to tree for it. <laughs> Bet the over, people. You know, yeah. you'll, th you'll thank me later. Uh, we're not going to be done by March 20th. You're going to be juggling so. three Ford against uh, yeah, the yeah, yeah, legislative yeah. endgame. I'm I know. sorry. The rules review process, the budget could get complicated. What are we going to do with task force recommendation implementation? Higher education is going to be a hot topic. We do know that some legislators are going to take another run at rewriting the state's funding formula. What's that going to look like? Uh, so there's a lot to do. And March 20th, I don't buy it. We're going to be here in April. <laughs> Give them credit for being ambitious. Oh, but, yeah, yeah. But still, bet the over, people. Yeah, this is just the first offer in the negotiation. Yeah, uh, yeah. This is just the jumping do, off point. Do not bank on it. Oh, we'll be there in April. Yeah. All right. Uh, but they will want to go home at some point and campaign for their primaries. Uh, but I don't think they'll be leaving by you March You would think self-interest will kick in at some point. I just don't think it'll kick in on March 20th. That's all, all right. That was a busy week. Next week's going to be another busy week. Like I said, we're working on putting the final pieces in place for a special episode focusing on the task force next week. Stay tuned for that. We're going to also work on an article uh, following up on where the task force might go next. Several busy weeks uh, between now and the end of the year and the beginning of the legislative session. Still a lot to get in. Kevin, you have a big project you're working on. Lots to do. Yes. It never slows yeah. down around here, does no, it? No, it's, it's going to be busy. Um... Got a lot to catch up on and, and stay on top of between now and the end of the year and the beginning of the session. All right. Well, hey, thanks so much. We always have a lot of fun on the Extra Credit Podcast, breaking down this complicated intersection, education politics and education policy. I'm Clark. I'm Kevin. Have a good week. <laughs>